Um, before we get started, let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just, uh, I just thank you for this opportunity that you give us to get together as a family uh, of fellow believers and just uh, to dive into your word and to study it. Father, I pray that, uh, that you would just reveal yourself to us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with each one of us. Uh, just help us to um, put aside the things that are going on in our lives uh, in the past week or what's coming uh, this week and beyond. And just help us to focus on uh, your word today and what you, have to, uh, what you have to teach us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill me and that you would um, remove anything that is me from this and just uh, and allow your word to be taught and spoken. And uh, I just pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so this week we are back to another, uh, another message within this uh, series called, that I'm calling The Kingdom of God, uh, which is a, an opportunity for us to look at what is going to be um, the new heavens and the new earth that Peter talked about, right, in Second Peter chapter 3, which is what we talked about a little bit last week, is that Peter makes the claim that we are going to be, or that we should be looking, looking forward to, or waiting for, the new heavens and the new earth, the coming day of God. And so, and, and I argued that the reason why we might struggle to wait for or to desire or to look forward to that is because maybe we don't have, uh, we haven't fully wrapped our minds around what heaven is going to be like or what the, the new earth and the new heavens are going to be like. And so part of the message today is to uh, talk about that a, a little bit more, just to kind of dive into what scripture teaches us and, and what is true, what the word tells us is true about heaven, because so often, as we talked about last week, we can get um, tempted into believing lies about God, about where He lives, and about His people. And the piece that I'm focusing on is that uh, is trying to counter that lie of what His dwelling place is like, and where we will be dwelling with Him as believers. Now, I want to before we get started, I want to. Um, go back to something that I had mentioned last week. And I just want to clear, things, clear something up a little bit um, for us. I had mentioned that part of the, uh, some of the, one of the goals that we had for this series uh, is to uh, establish a better understanding for us of sin and also uh, and establish really a hatred for it, a hatred for sin. But what that doesn't mean is that we are to hate sinners. Okay? And I want to make that clear. Believers even are still in sin. Okay? Sin is what's keeping us from experiencing God and experiencing heaven in its fullness. Okay? Sin is what forced us out of the Garden of Eden. The wages of sin is death. Sin and death are the enemy, not sinners. Okay. Sinners still living here, as Peter referred to in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, sinners here still have an opportunity for repentance. That's why God is exercising his, exercising his patience while we think that he's just taking a long time. We have an opportunity to receive him and to receive this eternal life and this opportunity to live in the kingdom as we're going to mention, as we're going to talk about later today. Okay, so before we get started, I want to read just a, another passage from Scripture. Um, 
that points to the kingdom of God being established forever. Remember last week I mentioned that there are so many times in Scripture where, where the Bible talks about the kingdom of God being established forever or the throne of God, God sitting on his throne forever. I just want to pull up another passage here for you that refers to that. And, that's, uh, uh, and really, it's important for us as we read these passages in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, to not immediately think that this, is, that this reference is, is just simply poetic. Uh, that reference to something forever is just simply, something simply poetic. Yes, it, it may be poetic, but it's also true. It's real. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it will not. Do you believe that God will fulfill his promises? Ezekiel chapter 37, starting with verse 21. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I, gift, or that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. When the nations will, then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Forever. All right, so last week we left off with uh, a discussion on what happens when we die. Because remember, we talked about the, the coming of the day of the Lord and how uh, that's going to usher in all of the events uh, where Christ is going to return and really usher in the creation, the death of the universe, and then the resurrection of the new earth and the new heavens. Right? And so that's what uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 I was referring to. But the reality is, is that many of us will die prior to that coming that coming day. And so what does that look like? What happens when we die? And so last week we, we uh, briefly discussed this, which uh, the, the coming of the day of the Lord, which is Christ's return, right, to conquer the earth. And this will usher in all of those events. We also touched on what will happen to those of us as believers who die before that day comes. We discussed that Jesus indicated that we will be with him in a place that he referred to as paradise. And we, and we briefly touched on Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 that provides us with some indications as to what life will be like when we're there. But what I did not address and something that I want to make clear or to make more clear from last week is that my firm belief is that scripture teaches that this paradise is not our final destination. This paradise is not our final destination. 
This is an intermediate state where believers go when they die to await the coming of the day of the Lord and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, which is where we will live in our final state, in our resurrected bodies, in a resurrected world. More to come on that later. So to be frank, I'm not really a big fan of the term intermediate state uh, because it sounds like it's some ethereal place in between places, world in between worlds, you know, kind of maybe something like uh, Chronicles of Narnia pops up in your mind. Um, It can be misunderstood to mean something like a non-physical in-between resting place, right? Really what I want us to use the term to talk about this intermediate state, this heaven, is the present heaven because that's the truth. It's a present heaven. The Bible makes this clear, is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's a conscious location where you are, right? And it's physical. Let's talk about that a little bit here, okay? Luke chapter 16, verse 19 is where I want to start. Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19. We need to map our minds around this this, uh, where we're going to go when we die as believers. Because if we don't, it'll disorient us and we won't know what to expect and we won't know how to be confident in our faith and knowing where we're going. We need to have this, we need to not be disoriented and know what's coming. So Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19. This is uh, Jesus teaching here. Verse 19 in Luke chapter 16 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, Between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should arise from the dead. So here we see Jesus using this opportunity to discuss and kind of give us a glimpse as to what life after death looks like. Right? We see uh, a, this, um, this rich man who is able to recognize who he is as himself, knowing that he has a family. And now again, remember, this rich man is also in, in Hades here. And, but he's still able to recognize himself. And he also recognizes this Lazarus. 
He's able to tell this, who this Lazarus is. And so therefore we can infer that Lazarus has continuation after death of himself. Right? He is the same person that he was prior to death. So there's this element of continuation that's here. There's also an indication that Lazarus has a finger that he can dip into water to help cool this, uh, help, help extinguish or uh, cool the tongue of this, of this rich man that's in Hades. And so what we see here is there's, there's physical places represented here. And I just wanted to show you that to kind of build upon that continuation from last week of where we go when we die. And we also see that something I didn't talk about last week is that there is also a place for people who do not believe in Christ, who have not decided to follow him. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later today. But I want us to focus on and be encouraged in the fact that there is a physical place where we will go. The Apostle Paul also had much to say about dying. Many of his letters address this and and address the coming of the day of the Lord. But uh, to continue our discussion on this topic of the present heaven, which is where we will go immediately as believers when we die, and, and to help us help further encourage us in this, I want to read a passage that shows Paul's teaching regarding dying and going to heaven. And I'm, I have it up here on the screen here for you. This is coming from Philippians chapter 1, and starting in verse 19. Paul teaches, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I, will, uh, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now notice what he says here. He says his desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Well, based on what we've discussed and the timing of the coming of the day of the Lord, Paul is referring to going to the present heaven. And he's convinced that it's far better. But far better than what? Far better than living here on earth under the curse. Away from the direct presence of God. And even so, this present heaven will not be our final destination. So let's talk about what is our final destination. Our final destination is to live with God and be his people. And there are a few things here that I want to address from Scripture where we can kind of build a picture as to what that is going to look like. The first point that I want to make is that creation will be set free from its bondage. Creation will be set free from its bondage. So let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Turn with me to to Romans chapter 8. Again, this is Paul teaching, Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Notice what Paul's saying there. He's not talking about just us as believers groaning and desiring and waiting for redemption. He mentions that specifically in verse 23. But he says, the creation, all of creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation, the whole creation, has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. So when you think of the term, the phrase, all creation, what comes to mind? Everything, the universe, all creation, everything that God has made, everything groans. The animals, the trees, the plants, the planet, the stars, the galaxies, the sun, the universe, everything, the creation. Don't limit God. He made it all. All creation groans. All is awaiting the day of redemption. What plummeted creation into suffering? Sin. Our sin. The sin of mankind is what plummeted everything into death and decay and suffering. And yet it waits for the day that we would be redeemed so that it will be redeemed, so that creation as a whole will be redeemed. That's what Paul is implying here in Romans chapter 8. So let's take a look at what that's going to look like. Revelation chapter 21. Turn with me there. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. We read this last week, and it's important that we read it again today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And then verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Did he leave anything out? He's making all things new. And then Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. Just flip your page. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, a tree, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we see just some glimpses that it's a physical place. The creation is going to be restored back to what its original condition, even greater than its original condition. Because at that point, all of creation will know what redemption looks like. We will have a full understanding of redemption. Adam and Eve had no clue. But they will, and so will we. And all of creation will see God's ability to redeem. Allow me to read to you. Keep your, keep your Bibles open in Revelation 22. And allow me to read to you from Genesis chapter 2. Starting with verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but we'll just go with it. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And the delium and the ox stone, onyx stone, are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. Which is, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now there's a few elements here in Genesis chapter 2 that I want to point out. If you have your Bibles open in Revelation 21 and 22, you will see there are some similarities between the Garden of Eden and this place that God created in the beginning and the place that is going to be brought to us in the end. Okay? So notice he planted a garden in Eden. Okay, we see that, those elements, uh, again here in Revelation chapter 22. There's trees. And out of the garden the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Well, here we have in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, so food for us to eat, yielding its fruit each month. Oh, and then there's the tree of life. We have the tree of life in Revelation 22, and the tree of life is pre- presented to us in Genesis chapter 2. See the continuity there? You have the tree of life again. And then there's a river. A river flowed out of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. And in Revelation 22, verse 1, we have a river, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. And then earlier in Revelation chapter 21, Uh, Verse 19, John talks about how uh, the city that's going to be brought down, this new Jerusalem, the city, there are going to be stones, and it's going to be adorned with every kind of jewel. And when I say stones, I mean jewels, precious stones, precious jewels. Right? He says, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, agate, or a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the seventh chrysophyte. And the ele- I'm not even going to pronounce that. The 11th, Jacinth, and the 12th, Amethyst. So we see here in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, there's reference to gold, 
there's a reference, reference to Delium and the Onyx Stone. And we see those again here in Revelation 21. So all I'm trying to do here is to show you that what God is doing is bringing it back to its condition. Restoring the world before it was tainted with sin. Now let me ask you this. Do you think there will be mud in heaven? Do you think there'll be mud? Why, why would we think that there wouldn't be mud in heaven? Because it's messy. Because we have to clean it up. Right? Will there be mud in heaven? The answer is yes. And we will have all of eternity to clean it up. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But think about the reason why you get upset about having to clean your house or clean. I mean, at least this is, this is the way it works for me. Because I don't have time. I don't have time to clean my house because I've got kids running around, because I've got this to do, I've got that to do. But why, don't I, why do I feel like I don't have time? Well, I'm doing a lot of wasted stuff. But ultimately, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of time because ultimately I'm going to die. But what if... You lived in a place that you knew you weren't going to die. Would you care about cleaning up the mud? Probably not. There will be mud in heaven. There is nothing wrong with mud inherently. Why? Because God created it. There is nothing wrong with created things inherently. They are good. Material things that God has made are good. Material things that man has made are good. Why? Because God created you. And he created you to be able to make those things. He gave you the abilities you have. Everything that's in this world, everything that's material, it all comes from him. There will be mud in heaven. You better believe it. And we're going to have a whole lot of fun with that mud. And there will be no arthritis. We'll have to deal with that too. I'll talk about that in a second. You've got to think that way. If God made it, it's good. There's nothing wrong with it. So now do you think there'll be mud in heaven? Yes. All right. The next point I want to make, and this kind of, I already kind of alluded to it already, is that death shall be no more. Can you say that with me? Death shall be no more. Okay, Isaiah chapter 25. Uh, you can choose to turn there, or I, I'll read it for you. I, I don't mind, whatever's easier for you. Revelation chapter 25. Starting with verse 7. This is talking about God here. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears 
from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And then Revelation chapter 21 back in verse 4 just a reminder of what we read earlier. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then beyond that, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, we see that there shall no longer be any curse. There shall no longer be any curse. Verse 3 in Revelation chapter 22, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This is, and when death is taken away, sin has to be taken away, because the wages of sin is death. It'll be gone. So imagine a world where there's no death and there's no sin. How much time do you have? you got a lot of time. All the time. Not even all the time in the world. Just all the time. Right? All the time. The language that's used here is so absolute. No longer. Phrases like, no longer will there be anything accursed. So how does this change how you might live? Or how you might think about living. How does this change the relationships that you would have in that future? You would have all the time, all of eternity, to talk to someone. And because there's no sin, you wouldn't feel bad about saying, hey, I gotta go. Right? I'm, I'm, making this, I'm trying to make this real. Hey, I gotta go. And they'll be like, yeah, I'll see you later. Because you will. Right? And, you'll, and when you're talking with that person, that sin won't be there. And so you won't be thinking about, well, what do they think about me? What are they thinking I'm thinking? What are they thinking that they, they're thinking that I'm thinking? Right? You know, you know those thoughts are going through your head when you're talking to somebody. People think like, I don't want to be in heaven for eternity with someone like my mother-in-law because I'm going to have to talk to her all the time. <laughs> You don't have to talk to her all the time because she won't care. Because she'll see you again. Right? Sin won't be present. Death won't be present. And you can just talk and leave. Or come back and talk some more. And you won't get bored of talking to that person because sin won't be there. We'll talk about boring here in a second. Okay. How will this change the way that we work? Okay, heaven does, or uh, the Bible does talk about there being work in heaven. Oh, man. No, it'll be good work. Because if you think about it, deep down, you really do do like to work. All right, Isaiah chapter 65. We're just going to be bouncing around from Isaiah to Revelation, if you can't pick up on that already, or if you haven't picked up on that already. Revelation chapter 65. I'm sorry, Isaiah 65. There's no such thing as Revelation 65. Isaiah 65. 
verses 21 through 22. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Now notice what it says next. They shall not build and another inhabit. And they shall not plant and another eat. For, the, for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the, blessed of the Lord and their, descendants with, and their descendants with them. So we're going to be doing work. Right? But what's, what's the problem with work today? Why don't we enjoy work today? But bosses, people, right? It takes up time, right? You get tired, ultimately because the curse is here. You got to wrap your minds around that. It's the curse. That's why you don't like your boss, right? Hopefully we're not talking about your boss, Andrea. <laughs> ultimately our boss is God, right? Uh, but, but let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Okay, allow me just to read this to you. I want to read to you the introduction of the curse. Okay? This is after Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Well, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Whoops. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so here's the curse. The Lord God said to the serpent, because of this, because of what you have, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we know that's what that's a reference to. Now, here's the curse to mankind. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire, sh- your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listed, whoa, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat it, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall spring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust, you shall return. The implication here is that Adam was already working. Right? God had already set him up to do work in the garden. He was to name all the animals and to take care of the garden. To take care of it. He was there to work before the curse. And now when the curse is, in, it was, is, in, um, is brought in, 
his work becomes a whole lot worse and a whole lot more difficult. Now just imagine when that curse is lifted, these things will not be in place and we'll be back to that condition. All right, I am running out of time. So we just have this, it just changes the way we work. It changes the way we see relationships. It changes the way we'll be talking to people. And then one other thing that I want to mention here, as we get, as we get close to closing, is that we will see his face. Revelation 22.4 tells us this. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is just incredible to me. Because if you compare this to Exodus, remember where God was talking to Moses and Moses said, in Exodus chapter 33 verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, and this being God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. But now in Revelation 22 verse 4, after the redemption and the resurrection of man, the resurrection of the church, the resurrection of the earth, the, inst- the institution of the new earth and the new heavens, we will see his face. And whose face will we see? None other than Jesus. Because Jesus is, right, God. We believe in the deity of Christ. And so we will see the face of Jesus and thus we will have seen the face of God. God's greatest gift to us and always will be himself. Psalm 63 verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Our longing for heaven, our longing for perfection is really a longing for God. Every other heavenly pleasure will derive from and be secondary to him. And secondary to his presence. We will worship him in everything he gives us. And everything we do. And we will have the opportunity to sit at his feet. And learn about him for all of eternity. God is infinite. He's the only one that's infinite. Not even we who will be there will be infinite. And we will have all of eternity to learn all about him. And we will never stop learning about him because of his infinite. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty amazing to me. Now, one thing I want to mention here is I want to get to this question that we addressed last week, is will life in heaven be boring? Okay, well, we've talked a little bit about maybe why it won't be, but I just want to, I want to reiterate this a little bit more. In Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 23, Jesus uh, is um, uh, preaching the Beatitudes, and he mentions that your days of mourning will turn to laughter. People sometimes say, I'd rather be having a good time in hell 
than be bored in heaven. Why, why would they say this? This couldn't be further from the truth. Hell will be deadly boring. Think about that. It will be so boring. Why? We just talked about it. Everything that is good, that is enjoyable, that is refreshing, that is fascinating, that is interesting, it's all derived from God. Not from us. It's derived from God. He made it all. Without God, there's nothing interesting to do. King David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our desire for pleasure and the experience of joy come directly from God. Because that is what he has made from his hands. How arrogant for us to think that we as human beings came up with the idea of having fun. God is the one who built that into us. I want to read a passage here from uh, a book that I mentioned last week. It's this uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. About, well, okay, uh, won't it be boring in heaven just to, just to further uh, build upon this and really drive home that it won't be, okay? Uh, others might state that, you know, won't it be boring to do good all of the time? Won't it be boring to do good all the time? Now, notice the assumption there. Sin is exciting, and righteousness is boring. We've fallen for the devil's lie. His most basic strategy, the same one he employed with Adam and Eve, is to make us believe that sin brings fulfillment. However, in reality, sin robs us of fulfillment. Sin doesn't make life interesting, it makes life empty. Sin doesn't create adventure, it blunts it. Sin doesn't expand life, it shrinks it. Sin's emptiness inevitably leads to boredom. When there's fulfillment, when there's beauty, when we see God as he truly is, an endless reservoir of fascination, boredom becomes impossible. So reorient where your idea comes from for what, where, he, where fun comes from, where excitement comes from. It doesn't come from us. It was built in to us. Because God created it. And one last thing here. I know I'm running over, Charlie, but this is important. Because I've talked about heaven a lot. But we have to acknowledge, and not just acknowledge, but remember that there is an alternative to heaven. Right? And this is a concern that people have, this question that I have on the screen is a concern that people have when they think about heaven, is how can I enjoy heaven knowing that a loved one is in hell? Right? Remember back in Luke chapter 16, verses 22 and through 24, that we, that we read earlier, we learned about um, Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man was not in heaven. He was in hell, and he was in anguish. So the question is, how can I enjoy heaven knowing that a loved one is in hell? Well, first of all, that should be a motivator for us, right? That should be a motivator for us as believers. I also want to read a, a, res, a response that J.I. Packer gave to this question, and I really appreciate it, but listen closely, because it, I think it is difficult, and I, I even struggle with this sometimes, but it is difficult, but I also know it's biblical. God the Father 
who now pleads with mankind to accept the reconciliation that Christ's death secured for all. Remember, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is waiting, God is patient. And so now he pleads with mankind to accept the reconciliation that Christ's death secured for all. And then God the Son, who is our appointed judge, who also wept over Jerusalem, will in a final judgment express wrath and administer justice against rebellious humans. God's holy righteousness will hereby be revealed. God will be doing the right thing, vindicating himself at last against all who have defied him. God will judge justly, and all angels, saints, and martyrs will praise him for it. So it seems inescapable that we shall, with them, approve the judgment of persons or rebels whom we have known and loved. Let me point to you where that's found. Revelation chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The truth is, in our sanctification at that point, we will be so sanctified that something we'll see much more clearly once we get to heaven and when we see the face of God is that none of us deserve to be in heaven to begin with. None of us do. By God's standards, no person is good. We have been so poisoned to think that we are good without Christ. And that is the very thing that is sending so many to hell. The fact that we think we are good. We are not good. We need Christ the Savior. And I also think at that point, when we're in heaven, we will be amazed at the patience of God. We will be so shocked that He waited so long and gave us the opportunity because we'll see Him for who He really is and we'll recognize just how holy He really is. And it all goes back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 9 there, where Peter says, uh, well, hey, let me just read it. I don't want to try to memorize it here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And this will bring us back to where we're going to start next week. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So guess what? You're still here. It's time to get to work. Take advantage of God's patience today. Nobody is guaranteed tomorrow. Not one of us. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He will come. So the point of next week's message is to talk about why we're still here. What are we doing here? Because what we do today matters for what we're going to be living tomorrow 
and in the future. Okay? How we live today impacts tomorrow. I hope this motivates you. We have some work to do. And it's exciting. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity uh, to share your word this morning and to, um, to just uh, be excited about what is coming. And uh, the, the new heavens and the new earth. But also, knowing what's coming, it should be somewhat of a burden to us now because we're still here. Father, just ignite that fire in us to be just constantly wanting to talk about you. Constantly wanting to talk about your coming kingdom. So that others would come to know you. And that they would have an opportunity for repentance. And to experience your patience. And your mercy and your forgiveness. Father, help us now to be encouraged. And to be motivated to be preaching your word and to be sharing it with others. Father, be with us now as we finish this, uh, uh, this uh, service this morning. Fill us with you as we sing these songs, these eternal songs. Songs that we will be singing even after all of this is said and done. We will be worshiping you and praising you for your holiness and your righteousness and your justice. We look forward to that day. We will be renewed and restored and with you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your Son who made this all possible. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.